0: This is How to Reach the West Again, a podcast that explores what it will take to have a fresh missionary encounter with Western culture. I'm your host, Brandon O'Brien. This is the final scheduled episode of the How to Reach the West Again podcast. I hope it's been as enriching for you as it has been for our team here at Redeemer City to City. And as we finalize production this week, these words from Philippians chapter one, verses three to six have been on my mind. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. However you partner with us in the gospel, wherever you live and serve, we are very grateful for you, and we pray for you often. This episode's a little different. Call it a bonus track. It's shorter than the others, we don't have any guest interviews, just brief concluding thoughts from Tim Keller about why he's hopeful about a missionary encounter with Western culture and where we go from here. In addition, at the end, we have an exclusive short reflection from Dr. Keller about the centrality of the gospel and how easy it is to lose sight of it. So without further ado, here are the concluding thoughts from Tim Keller.
1: The challenges and responsibilities outlined here are formidable. It would be very easy to be discouraged, but we have at least these encouragements. First, the rise of global Christianity. While the situation may look bleak for Christianity in the West, the West is no longer the center of Christianity. One of the main developments of the 20th and 21st century is the explosive growth of non Western Christianity, the vast majority of which is evangelical Pentecostal. At the very least, 70% of all Christians today live outside of the West, and many believers in Western countries are non Anglo people from non Western countries. There are many more Presbyterians in Ghana than in the United States and the UK. There are more Anglicans in Nigeria alone than in all of the US and the UK. The reality is that the most secular populations of North America and Europe are in decline. Meanwhile, through evangelism and birth rate, Christianity is growing rapidly, and through immigration and mission work, the church will continue to thrive and grow in many places in the West. As a result, the number of people who are secular, they have no religious preference, that number is expected to decline from 16% to 13% by mid-century. Secondly, the power of chosen religion. If late modern culture rejects most aspects of evangelical Christianity, there is one feature of it, at least, that Western people find appealing. It's emphasis on choice. Some religions can be largely inherited in form. There are religions you are born into and adhere to because of family background or nationality. Of course I'm a Lutheran. I'm Norwegian. Or I'm Catholic because I'm Italian. Or I'm Hindu because I'm Indian. Today, however, the emphasis is on individual choice and decision. Young people do not want to follow a path that they have not chosen for themselves. This is why traditionally inherited religion, Catholicism, and mainline Protestantism are in decline, sharp decline. In Europe, the state churches are emptying. Evangelical faith is far better suited to such a cultural situation because it insists on a personal decision of faith and a conversion experience for everyone. Nevertheless, evangelical faith, while well adapted to the culture of individual choice, it also appropriately challenges it. For when we freely choose to follow Christ, we also choose to give up living according to our own lights and submit to his loving authority. The culture formative power of cities. Much of the energy of Christian growth today is among non-white, non-Western people and young people who want chosen religion, not inherited religion. This is why the great cities of the West may become hotbeds of new growing churches. There, the populations are both young and multi-ethnic. Cities are the culture-forming wombs of modern society. Through agglomeration, the amassing of talent in urban proximity, new innovations and creative enterprises arise and spread out to the rest of the culture. If churches thrive and grow in cities... And if increasing numbers of urban Christians demonstrate their commitment to mercy and justice and integrate their faith with their work in business, the arts, the media, and the academy, then Christians will continue to be salt and light in society. Everything is unprecedented once. Up until 1900, there had never been a fast-growing revival in a non-Western pre-Christian country. Then there was the Korean Presbyterian Revival in 1907 and the East African Anglican Revival In the 1930s, there was never a renewal movement of monasticism until there was. There was never a reformation until there was. There was never anything like a great awakening until there was. Now, there has never been a fast-growing revival in a post-Christian secular society, but every new thing is unprecedented until it happens. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. There's no reason to believe that this promise has an expiration date. What we need now? Collaborative independence. What will it take to move the church toward a missionary encounter with Western culture? The answer is collaborative yet independent thinking. Why collaboration? There is simply no one denomination or tradition that is historically strong in all of the areas that we've been talking about. Evangelism and formation, high theory yet revival and spiritual awakening, mercy and justice, and faith and work integration, and historic Christian sexual ethics. Who is sufficient for these things? No one of us and no one church. That's why collaboration. But why independent thinking? As Leslie Newbegin noted repeatedly, the Western church has been made captive to the gods of secular culture, but different branches of people pursue different idols. As a result, Every part of the agenda above will attract anger or opposition from one part of the church. Evangelism and sexual ethics will arouse the hostility of the mainline church. Emphasis on racial and economic justice will alarm many in the evangelical churches. Those working toward a missionary encounter will need to listen to their critics as a good discipline of self-examination, but in the end, they cannot follow them into their respective cultural captivities.
0: Redeemer City to City's deep commitment to the value of collaboration is why we've included practitioners from different parts of the Western world in every episode of this series. Our vision is clearer when we look together at the gospel and our calling. One person sees an asset where another sees a liability. Brothers and sisters in one part of the world or another segment of society help us see our own biases and blind spots. As we follow the instruction of Hebrews 10.24 and consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, I submit that the sort of collaboration Dr. Keller is calling for here is one important way to do just that. Stay tuned to the end to hear a final word of encouragement from some of our wonderful guests. But first, Tim Keller reminds us of the centrality of the gospel of grace as we pursue this very important work,
1: followed by a brief personal update. Grace to the point. We must never lose grasp of the difference between gospel grace and religious moralism. Why does the Protestant church constantly fall into the temptation to self-righteousness, dominance, and exclusion? Why does it fail to reproduce the early church's social mandate? Because it loses its grip on the very core of its faith. Through the last few centuries, the church in various parts of the world has experienced times of renewal called awakenings or revivals. During these seasons, the church is marked by strong growth through conversions, by genuine cultural engagement leading to positive social changes, and by both the planting of new churches and the renewal of older congregations. What leads to such times? There are many features of these movements, but at the heart of them all is a rediscovery of the gospel of grace, grace totally free to us, yet infinitely costly to our Savior. When we lapse back into thinking that we're saved by our own moral efforts, we become enmeshed in both pride and fear, Pride, because we may think God and the world owe us a claim. Fear, because we can never be sure we've lived truly good enough lives. And so, when we lose the existential or the doctrinal grasp on the truth that we're saved by faith alone, through grace alone, because of Christ alone, we not only lose our joy and fall into fear, but we also lose our graciousness and fall into pride. The world, of course, is quick, too quick, to find fault with the church and thus justify its dismissal of the gospel message. And yet it is quite right to do so. If the church continually moves toward dominance and control rather than love and service, it shows that it doesn't really believe the gospel it preaches. If the church doesn't believe the gospel, why should the world? In Shantung Compound, Landon Gilkey's experience in a Japanese internment camp showed him that many religious people were just as selfish and exploitative as irreligious people. Though many missionaries had been taken hostage, they started to form cliques and looked out only for themselves. Yet Gilkey saw something quite different in Eric Little. Little, the Olympic gold medalist of chariots of fire fame, didn't just worry about his own self. He spent tireless hours in that internment camp caring for elderly prisoners, teaching classes on the Bible and science, and organizing games and dances for the children right up to the day of his death. This sacrifice brought Gilkey to see the difference between generic moralism and a religion of grace. He concluded like this, I quote, religion is not the place where the problem of man's egotism is automatically solved. Rather, it is there that the ultimate battle between human pride and God's grace takes place. Insofar as human pride may win the battle, religion can and does become one of the instruments of human sin. But insofar as there the self does meet God and so surrender to something beyond its own self-interest, religion may provide the one possibility for a much-needed and very rare release from our common self-concern. Yes, Gilkey's right. It is rare. But the gospel brings this release. There is no hope without it. Why is it so crucial to be gospel-centered? Why is it so crucial not to lose our grip on the idea that we're saved by grace, not by our efforts? I don't want to add to what I've said in the past or written in the past, uh, but I do want to talk about the importance of this, maybe in light of some very recent developments in the world and in my life. Uh, first of all, many know that I have pancreatic cancer. Uh, pancreatic cancer is a very lethal kind of cancer. and I've been getting treatments for it, both chemotherapy and surgery, and those treatments aren't easy. And of course, the possibility of the cancer taking my life relatively soon hangs over us. Now, I want you to know that this diagnosis has shown Kathy and I that at a pretty deep level, we still believed that it was because of our wisdom and skill and goodness that God was giving us a good life. We would never have said that I don't think we believed it consciously. We would never have agreed to anyone else saying that, that if you live your life right and you read your Bible and you pray and you try hard to live like Jesus, that basically God will give you a pretty good life. And yet, we once the cancer came, we realized we actually were believing that at some level. We were still believing that we are the ones who through our diligence and efforts had created the good life we had. In a sense, we still believe we were saving ourselves. But we hadn't (laughs) been saving ourselves. Everything we had was a gift of grace. We saw it now, now that the cancer was here. It was all a gift of grace. It was never something we were really in control of. And we realized we had to go one more time deep into our hearts with the gospel and ask, do we really believe that God loves us by his grace? That he saves and blesses us only by his grace? And therefore... Everything he does is what's best for us. Or do we believe that basically we actually, by our good life, kind of control what God has to do for us, kind of make him owe us, put him in a position where he owes us a good life. And I can't tell you how deeply comforting it is to finally take your hands off your life and say, Lord, the good things in my life were never there because I merited them or forced you to give them to me. They were there because of your grace. You've always been motivated by your love, not by my holiness. And you are now, and therefore I've got nothing to fear. You're only gonna give me what's best for me. You only ever have. And for Kathy and I to really recognize that at a deep level, we didn't believe we were saved by grace. We still thought we were kind of controlling God through our works. It was uh, hard, hard work, especially when you realize there's all these people around the world saying, oh, Tim and Kathy don't do that. They really believe in grace. But the answer is, of course, none of us believe the gospel all the way down. None of us put all of our faith in Jesus Christ or we'd be perfect and we're not. But that's been incredibly important for us, very important that we, in the midst of this cancer, have become, in some ways, more gospel-centered than we've ever been, more grace-centered than we've ever been. Secondly, and I guess it's the other thing, is the world. has <laughs> seems to have gotten so much more hostile in so many ways. The, the public discourse is just shocking, especially to almost any, anybody over the age of 30 or even 25 who remember when you just simply didn't talk that way. I mean, people on social media have expressed gladness that I was dying because I'm on the wrong side, you see, of this or that issue. There's, I've never seen that before. I never expected to see it in, you know, you might say in print, as it were, in public. I can imagine people thinking that or talking about it to somebody else, but it's a, it's a much more um, dog-eat-dog world of public discourse. And that means there's never been a time in which the gospel identity The gospel identity, that of a sinner saved by sheer grace alone, yet that of an unconditionally loved child of the king who needs no other affirmation. See, there's never been a time in which that kind of gospel identity would ever look more distinct. See, a person with a gospel identity can never feel superior to anyone. And they never need to put anyone down to bolster their self-esteem. And so they look so different. And they've never looked more different. And related to that, there's a lot of evidence that churches and church leaders who hold orthodox doctrine yet have been abusive, self-righteous, and domineering, and who have allied themselves with political forces that are quite ruthless and cruel. There's a lot of evidence that there are quite a few churches like that, and quite a few church leaders like that, and that's being pointed out. Many people who believe the Nicene Creed and believe the Reformation, uh, catechisms and creeds and all that, they seem very orthodox, and yet they've been abusive, they're self-righteous, they're domineering, um, they're getting incredibly political, and they're allying themselves with very cruel forces. And so lots of people are saying, does orthodox Christian theology itself automatically lead to domineering and to abuse and oppression? There's many people are saying that saying it's just orthodox doctrine, the belief that the Bible's true and the belief that that there are moral absolutes and all that, that just automatically leads to domineering and abuse and oppression. Look, look at all these examples. Now, of course, secular skeptics have been saying that for years, that religion's just bad for us, for human beings. And recently, the church has been giving those kinds of critics, I'm afraid, a lot of ammunition and evidence to support those claims. And therefore, in my lifetime, at least in North America, that is, there's never been a time in which Christ-centered, grace-centered Christian churches and theology will look so distinct. They will look so distinct. There are definitely other people, we talk about this, I've written about this, there are plenty of other churches that are orthodox in their theology, but they've lost a grip on the center of it all. They've lost a grip on the On the gospel, there's sliding into legalism, there's sliding into relativism. I don't want to redo all that. But the fact is, those who really do practice grace to the point, (laughs) those churches that are really Christ-centered and grace-centered, will really, really look so very, very different. Some people are saying to me, aren't we going to have to draw lines to distinguish us from fundamentalism or nationalism or whatever your name is are we going to have to draw lines to distinguish ourselves from these other movements the answer is my answer right now is stress grace practice the implications of grace and the differences will become obvious now there's never been a more important time and there never will be (laughs) a more important time i think to um Practice gospel-centeredness until the next age of the world because it's still the most important thing of all.
0: around just a few minutes more to the very end to hear a few of our guests articulate why they are hopeful about the possibility of a missionary encounter with western culture how to reach the west again has been a production of redeemer city to city it was written and hosted by brandon o'brien and produced by Braden gregg special thanks to roosevelt community church in phoenix arizona for generously offering us their studio space to learn more about redeemer city to city visit us online at redeemercitytocity.com
2: I'm hopeful about a missionary encounter with Western culture, because the West is increasingly big, urban, multicultural and cosmopolitan, just like the Roman Empire where Christianity first flourished. People are spiritually hungry, they are searching for answers. Every year we see people coming to faith. People are also lonely, they crave the sort of community only the gospel can provide. Our witness may feel tiny in comparison to the size of the challenge, but it's tiny like a mustard seed that grows over time. We shouldn't think in terms of months or years, but of decades and generations. Here in Italy, we have a saying, Rome wasn't built in a day. Rome also wasn't evangelized in a day. We have to be faithful. God will build his church over time. God will honor his word and send his spirit. There's this day, then the next, then a the lifetime, and what God does as people stay faithful and the gospel is preached all over the world.
0: I'm hopeful about a missionary encounter with Western culture because I think once you get over the initial skepticism or resistance to the claims of Jesus Christ, I think you find a real sense of spiritual hunger and a real hunger for answers to the big questions of life and I think increasingly a sense that western culture isn't working out the way that people hoped it would Um, and they're not seeing the compelling and beautiful answers and way of living um, that the west often promises and in Jesus Christ we do have answers to the big questions of life and we do see a life of flourishing as we follow him.
3: I'm hopeful about a missionary encounter uh, in Western culture because Jesus says he will build his church. And that's a promise, that's a guarantee. Jesus is committed to building his church in the West as, as much as anywhere else. And it's, it's encouraging when we think about what the church is to Jesus. This is not his hobby. This is not something he attends to in the couple of spare hours he gets at the weekend. Uh, the church is his bride, the church is his passion. And he says the gates of hell will not prevail. And a gate is not a weapon. Jesus is not saying, hey, just hang tight. You'll get through this. He is saying, actually, the defenses of hell will not prevail against him building his church. So we can have great confidence, even if we're daunted, even if we need more help. We can know that Jesus will do what he's promised to do. So I'm excited about that. I'm hopeful about a missionary encounter with Western culture because it's becoming more and more difficult for the Church to live in its own little bubble and subculture. For me, this is a positive development, because it means, as we are forced to live more in the world, we will be challenged to address our hypocrisy more seriously, to dig deeper into the resources of the Gospel, to give account of our faith, and to learn what it means to love people where they are. I don't think the Church in the West has done any of these things particularly well in recent years, but I genuinely think it has an opportunity to do so now, whether it likes it or not. When they look at statistics, or think, well, if we all share forces, if we join, uh, then we can do great things and all that. I'm not optimistic in that sense. I mean, not pessimistic either, but we'll, we'll just see. But I'm hopeful. Leslie Newbigin, once in his old age, was asked, uh, do you have any optimistic ideas about uh, the future of the West? And he says, well, I'm hopeful that Christ has risen. It can sound like a cliche, but in the end, that's the only answer I can give as a question. I'm very hopeful, extremely hopeful, actually because Christ has risen. What I can do here and now is doing my work as a priest, being hopeful that God will bless it and and will use it and will give some eternity to it.